The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. I'll be lifted up above the hills and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Pray with me. Father, you told us through Micah, that there would come a time, the latter days, the last days, the end, that there would come a time when you would lift up amongst the peoples your people. Expressed in a geographic sense in Micah, dispersed around the world today, you are lifting up your people. Because in the center of them is you. You are exalting up in the midst of the nations yourself and your teaching and dispersing it around the globe, drawing the nations to yourself. You are at the center, drawing peoples from every tongue and tribe and nation to yourself to your great honor and to our good. And we thank you for that and pray then, Lord, that you would use us in that process. That you would even be pleased to use this church, those of us here in that process, here at the end, to lift up Christ, to draw the peoples of the earth to Him, to carry forth out of Zion, your law, your teaching. But Lord, we are weak and we need your help. And so I pray for this morning. And I pray for this morning, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word. Through Acts chapter 25, that you would speak to us, God, and that you would change some things in our hearts and minds about how we perceive you, how we perceive this world and our place in it. Lord, the things that I imagine you changing, you may have other things to do. Lord, do those things. The individuals gathered here, I don't know everybody here. I don't know where everybody is, but you do. And Father, I pray that you would send your spirit to be at work in individual people's hearts to produce the, to produce the changes that you're after, to grow them, to draw them, to sanctify them, to save them even. Lord, would you do that today, this morning? Send forth your word today. Draw peoples to you today. Draw people here today. Pray this for your glory, Lord, and for the good of your church, for the hope of the nations. In Christ's name, amen. I recently read an article written by the father of a young boy, and he explained how a bully at school kicked his son in the stomach. 
and it caused a lot of pain for a number of days. And during the course of those days, while he was hurting, he was at home, and it just happened to be that his son was going to the bathroom and left the door open. And it just happened that while he was going to the bathroom, his wife happened to walk down the hall, and it just happened that as she walked down the hall and the door was open and her son was going to the bathroom, she glanced in and saw that his urine was a very dark brownish color, which is unusual. So they went to the doctor. And all the examinations and the tests focused around the, the likely incident, that blow to the stomach. They were investigating that and looking at things. But for some reason or another, the doctor kept pressing them to undergo some seemingly totally unnecessary tests, which revealed an extremely, extremely rare disease. I think they said like a dozen people in the country have it. An extremely rare disease. Caught in this boy at a very early stage, and therefore they had a chance. But as of the writing of the article, the medical battle was still ongoing, and they weren't sure how it would turn out. So there's a situation, this father, this mother, this son, they're in this battle, and what's one of the conclusions they draw? Can you guess? Thank God for bullies. Thank God for the meanness in that bully's heart that led him to kick their son and cause some bleeding from the disease-weakened area in his abdomen. And thank God for the previously annoying habit of going to the bathroom with the door open. And thank God for the random timing of the wife walking down the hallway. And thank God for the, the glance into the bathroom at just the right moment to perceive just the right symptom. And thank God for the doctor who was persistent, even aware of the existence of this disease and knew the symptoms and was persistent in pressing for the tests. And thank God that they showed up. Caught this disease at an early stage. All of those things, human actions and decisions and choices, taking particular courses, all of them under the providence of God. Human activity and endeavors, thoughtful persistence under the reigning sovereign providence of God, carrying out his intentions to surface this disease at just the right time. The pairing of those two ideas, human activity under the providence of God, is what we're going to consider today from Acts chapter 25. God is always at work in the world, using people to accomplish his purposes. This morning in Acts chapter 5, we're going to look at Paul's fourth trial. There are five. He's in this fourth trial here in the book of Acts. Last week, as we looked at the third one in chapter 24, we saw Paul in two different settings. One, a public setting, the trial, at which he argued and modeled for us a life of innocent integrity, a life that upholds the gospel message, that lives consistent with it, gives legs to it, is persuasive. He modeled that. And then the second setting was the private setting with the Roman governor Felix, in which he told Felix exactly what he needed to hear. He was courageously fitting in his speech. Told him where he stood with God. Paul was innocent. and Felix didn't let him out of jail. Felix kept him imprisoned, even when Felix himself was recalled back to Rome. He left Paul in jail for the next governor to deal with, the new governor, a man by the name of Festus. 
He arrives, and then we follow him through chapter 25 and looking at Paul's fourth trial. Let me read the text. I'm going to read the whole chapter, starting in verse 1. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against him, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. And when he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourselves know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus, And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. And I answered them that it is not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charges laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, But on the next day, took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. And when the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss as to how to investigate such questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesarea. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. 
Therefore I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So the chapter ends. The new governor here is a man named Portius Festus, and he's new to the area, and therefore, unlike Felix, he's really unfamiliar with all the players involved. Doesn't understand the situation, doesn't know the local history, and additionally, he's actually new to the post of governor, so he's new to this level of responsibility. Those two factors of his newness are going to be significant this morning in what happens. He arrives in the province of Caesarea, and as was customary, he immediately begins to set about to meet those who are the local authorities with whom he's going to have a lot of dealing. So he soon heads up to Jerusalem to talk to the Sanhedrin. And when he's there, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, senses an opportunity to kind of probably exact a favor out of the new guy in the block. And so they ask him, hey, can you bring Paul, this guy that's still in jail over back in the capital, can you bring Paul over here that we might examine him? They're intending to kill him. The text tells us so. The plot that they hatched two years ago to execute Paul, they've still kind of kept that on the back burner. It's two years now. Paul's been in jail for two years, and they still want his blood. And they're intending to kill him. Festus doesn't know this. He doesn't know any of this. But he does know that he's just new to the province, and he doesn't want to spend any time in Jerusalem. He needs to get back to the capital. He hasn't been there very long. So he says, well, you know, we can do this back at home where he's actually in jail. Let's go do it back there. That's the proper place. That's where I want to be. And so, providentially, the threat against Paul's life is thwarted, totally unbeknownst to Festus. So they move back to Caesarea. Verses 6 to 12 then record the basics of that trial, the fourth trial. They make many serious charges. They're unspecified. He skips over the details here. They make many serious charges, all of them unproven. There's no evidence here. Just accusations, probably along the nature of the previous accusations made with no evidence produced, which means that all the defendant has to do is say, no, I didn't. And lacking any other evidence, he'd be released. And that's essentially what Paul does. Probably kind of rebutting the areas of the charges, he says, no, I did not break the law of the Jews. No, I did not defame the temple. No, I did not break the law of the Romans. I'm innocent. Didn't do anything. Now, realize that later, verses 18, 19, Festus tells us in, in his speech to Agrippa that Festus is frankly surprised by this. He expected there to be a lot more in this case than what's actually developing in front of him. He tells him, you know, actually, what they got before me, there wasn't really anything about the law. Here I am sitting over a legal case and there isn't anything about the law. It's a religious argument. They're arguing about some points of their law and and about a a dead guy named Jesus that amazingly the prisoner thinks is alive again. It was really weird. No idea what was going on. So probably kind of struggling with what to do here, seeing the anger of the Sanhedrin, now he comes up with the idea to offer them the favor that they'd earlier asked for. How about if we go back to Jerusalem? Maybe that'll pacify you guys a little bit. Maybe things will become a little more clear there somehow or another. Paul, do you want to go back to Jerusalem and be tried there? Which is illegal and dangerous. It's illegal because as Paul points out in verse 10, now that Festus has convened the court here, this is where the trial's happening. 
So I should be tried and verdict should be pronounced here. And you yourselves, referring not just to Festus, but also to his assistants, you yourselves know there's no case here. So you can put off pronouncing a verdict like Felix did, but you cannot call do-over and move the trial. That's illegal. Here's a trial, render a verdict. Follow the law. So it's illegal for them to move, but it's also dangerous. It's dangerous because we know, we can read this, we know there's a plot against his life. Paul remembers there was a plot against his life. But Paul also probably is detecting something else. Luke records three times the use of the word favor. The end of chapter 24 and twice in the beginning of 25, you find that the Roman governmental officials are inclined to do favors to the Sanhedrin. Roman justice does bend to local pressure. What do you know? We've seen repeatedly how Roman justice upholds the law. Well, when it gets over a barrel, it bends a little bit. Felix, the reason Felix got recalled to Rome, the reason he's no longer the governor, is that he got in trouble for being too brutal with the local Jewish population. And they complained, and Rome finally said, that's enough, we need to settle this. And in an appeal to kind of help the situation, he does the Jews a favor. I'll leave Paul in prison. You write a nice letter to Caesar for me. How about that? And he's gone. And Festus shows up. And they ask him a favor. He doesn't want to do it at first, but now he brings up the very same favor, probably having seen some of the fury that they have. And Paul senses this. Why is this guy willing to break the law all of a sudden? He's bending to them. I'm not going to get a fair trial here. I appeal to Caesar exercising his providentially existing right as a citizen to have his case tried before the emperor himself. He bumps it all the way up the ladder, takes it out of the local governor's hand. The local governor had no right to not say yes. Festus acts like he's still in charge. Let me think about that. He doesn't have the right to say no. It's been appealed to the Caesar. It is now in the Caesar's court. Paul has acted. So he's innocent, but seeking a fair trial... He moves it to Caesar's court. And while he's waiting there, Agrippa and his sister Bernice arrive. And Festus lays out the case before them. We see all the the kind of the recounting of the very same details there. And Agrippa, being from a local ruling family, has heard about all this stuff before. But never from the horse's mouth, so to speak. So he's kind of anxious to hear. That would be interesting to hear Paul talk. So I'd like to hear that. Okay, very well. And you can help me out because I really don't know what the issue is. I need to write something to Caesar and I'm not sure what I'm supposed to write because he hasn't actually come close to breaking any laws. And Agrippa agrees to help him and they set up the fifth trial which we'll look at next week. It ends with them standing there in the court at the end of this chapter. That's the text. 27 verses that don't once mention God. It's kind of interesting. 27 verses, a whole chapter in the Bible doesn't mention God once, only briefly alludes to anything about the gospel in Festus' confused comment about Jesus. There's no detail about the trial, though it's recounted twice. It's really easy to read this, I think, and say, why is this in the Bible? What's going on here? It's in the Bible, I think, for a couple of reasons. It fits into this context here at the end of the book to support several themes that Luke has been developing. Some things we've already talked about before. We see, for instance, again, Paul's innocent integrity. 
Twice, he says, I'm innocent, I didn't do anything. Twice, Festus says the same thing. You're innocent, you didn't do anything. So we get that thread of testimony here. We also get the fact that, and because of that, Christianity is no threat to the empire. Christianity has no threat for ordered government for Rome, no problems there. We get that thread too. We also see a little bit of Roman justice. Though the local officials bend, the legal structure of an appeal to Caesar, that still exists. The empire still protects Christianity. We see all those things here. We've talked about some of them before. But I think the main issue in this chapter is probably not any of those things, although we could talk about them. I think the main issue in this chapter is simply an answer to the question, how does Paul get to Rome? Because if you put it back into the context of the book of Acts, in chapter 19, we read that God, through the Holy Spirit, has said to Paul, you're going to Rome. And in chapter 23, Jesus visits Paul. Well, Paul's imprisoned and says, you're going to Rome. Take heart. You must testify about me in Rome also. And if you take chapter 25 out, you don't know how he gets there. How does that work out? You've got a promise of God left dangling. But if you only have chapter 25, you have seemingly very ordinary human events. People doing this and that, no mention of God whatsoever. But the two of them together, what you have, is God making a promise and God bringing about that promise through the ordinary actions of human beings. This is a lesson about providence. So let me give the main point for this morning. That's what I'm working on for for the main idea that rises up this morning, I think. God providentially works to carry out his gospel purposes. God providentially works to carry out his gospel purposes. Therefore, trust him and follow him. God is always working. He's carrying out many different purposes. But all of them are built upon and lead back to what he's doing in the gospel. That's what he's about. He's carrying out his plans and therefore calls for us to trust him and to follow him. I'm going to make two observations along those lines. The first one, about providence. The glory of God's providence calls for our worship and our trust. Providence is a glorious thing. The glory of God's providence calls for something in us. It should not be a doctrine that we put on the shelf and leave alone, but we should look at it and realize we are called to worship Him and to trust Him because of that. I've used the word providence a couple times. Let me define it. Providence is God's action, God's action, in and through natural agencies to carry out his purposes. So God's doing something. It's God's action in and through natural agencies to carry out his purposes. So, A miracle does not qualify. A miracle is not providence. That's not a natural agency. That's a supernatural agency. 
But God works through natural agencies, be they people, maybe animals or weather patterns. He works through all kinds of natural things that on the surface you can look at and just say, well, that's just normal. That's just people doing stuff. That's just rain. That's just life. Natural agencies, human or otherwise, to accomplish his purposes. That's what the doctrine of providence is. Captures God's side, God's reign, God's purposes through human activity. An example. God purposed to bring you into existence. You're not an accident. You're here on purpose. God purposed to do that. How? Well, some years back, he used two, at least two, natural agents who did some very natural things, probably. Nine months later, here you are. Somebody could look at that and say, that's totally normal. Exactly. And it's God's purpose to bring you into existence. It's providence. And it's providence even if it included some sin. Providence itself covers over sin. There is no such thing as a sin that is outside of God's control. It does not make him the author of sin, People, the natural agents, are the authors of sin, but it exists under his control, within his plan. The best example is the cross, planned by God and clearly sin. Natural agents acting to do God's purposes. Providence. And I go into all of that because the quiet glory of God's providence shows up in this passage, if you have eyes to see it. I say quiet because it's very subtle. You need not read this chapter and think anything about God. It could just be a history book. Just like the book of Esther could be. You ever read the book of Esther? It's a whole book in the Bible that doesn't mention God once. Not once in the whole book. Nor anything about worship. But it's a book of the Bible. Designed to teach us providence. How God works through ordinary human events. In this case, how Paul got to preach to Caesar, how he got to Rome. Place it in the context of chapters 19 and 23. You have the promises fulfilled by God through human activity. Think about this. Paul doesn't go to Rome if he doesn't appeal to Caesar. And he doesn't appeal to Caesar if his life is not threatened. But he doesn't even have his life threatened so as to appeal to Caesar if Festus grants the first favor and just summons him up to Jerusalem he's killed along the way. And none of that exists if the Roman government hasn't years and years and years before established certain laws that entitle citizens to appeal. And Paul's not a citizen if his father hadn't years and years before done a few certain things that put him into citizenship. At every level of this, there are things happening that are ordinary human choices and behaviors All of them are how God is fulfilling his promises. It's God's providence. Which could really easily, could really easily be totally boring. I mean, it could be totally boring. Probably some of you are sitting here thinking, this is great. What this means is that there isn't a single thing that's accidental or random, or outside of God's control, such that he's like, wow, surprised at that. 
Didn't count on that one. I need to figure that in somehow. It's all under his control. And in your laps, both. As you begin to get your mind around providence, there is much glory in this. Have you ever tried to multitask? Of course you have. You ever tried to read a book, shave, talk on your cell phone while you're driving to work? And if you're female, while you're putting on your makeup. We try to do that kind of stuff, and it doesn't always work very well. God's multitasking a billion billions worth of details all at once. And nobody's aware of it. Because every single one of us is sitting there thinking, should I go here? Should I go there? Felix loves brutality. So he's beating on the Jewish people all the time. Whoops, that gets him in trouble with the empire. He gets recalled, and Caesar says to his clerk, look on the list to see who's next up for a governorship. Oh, Portius Festus, send him a letter. He's moving to Caesarea, exactly as God intends him to. And not Festus, not Caesar, not Felix, not anybody is thinking about that at all. And every single thing that's happening in your life right now, the very same. And every single thing that will happen on Tuesday, the very same. It's really difficult for me to read this passage and not think of Tuesday. Because what we're seeing here is a government at work. The military officers, the local rulers, the large empire-wide laws, the Caesar himself, the president, if you will, all of that working on one particular man's case that affects this massive New religion, if you will, Christianity. It's a government at work, and God is moving the chess pieces around as the people in the government make their own decisions. Not a one of them is sitting there thinking, I'm doing something that I have no intention of doing. God's forcing me. No, he's not. But he is sovereignly reigning over it providentially. He presents opportunities to us that shape us that bring together other people who offer other opportunities that shape us and we respond to and make decisions. Imagine putting a thousand Hollywood actors on a stage. It'd be a big stage. Put a thousand Hollywood actors on a stage and say to them, do whatever you want. Do whatever comes to your mind, whatever seems right to you, whatever you can persuade one another to do, whatever you, whatever you think would be entertaining What are the odds that what comes out of it is exactly the script that you'd already written? Zero. That's the odds. That's what happens in God's world all the time. Not because he's omniscient and looks ahead and sees what people are going to do and then backwrites it, but because he is sovereign and controls it. This is philosophically deep water. Essentially what's going on is a human freedom that is compatible with sovereignty of God. A human freedom that says, I will do exactly what I want. Which is exactly what God wants. Now, once in the sense of legal command, no. God commands, thou shalt not kill. But God willed that his son be killed. I'm speaking at the second level of will. Exactly what God wills, sovereignly wills, 
things that cover sin, like the cross. We act freely in ways that perfectly match God's sovereign will. If you want a philosophical term, it's called compatibilistic freedom. You can write that down, talk to me about it later if you like. We are clearly and certainly free natural agents that always act beneath the providential sovereignty of God. And that goes for governments too. Which means on Tuesday, as was already prayed today, which means on Tuesday, we're all going to get up in the morning and go vote as we think best or forget to vote or be sick and not be able to vote or just vote willy-nilly, vote for Donald Duck or whatever. And the person elected at every single level, every single referendum, is exactly right according to God's sovereign plan. Might it be sinful? Yes, according to God's sovereign plan, it's exactly what he has purposed. I, I know there's some, there's some deep water there. If you want to talk more about that later, I'd be more than happy to. But what's important is that I press both of these things about responsibility and sovereignty so that we will act and think. Everybody in the story is acting and thinking. Paul's watching out for himself, which is the fulfillment of the promise. Paul doesn't just sit back and say, I don't care what happens. He's acting and thinking, as are all the other agents. And it's exactly what God willed. So I press this one so that we'll act and think and be responsible, and I press this one so that we'll worship and rest. How does this produce worship and rest? I quote a proverb, a paraphrase of proverb. The hearts of the kings are like streams in the rivers of the hands of God. Do you know that proverb? A king thinks this and that and such, and God steers it wherever he wills. Now that's terrifying if God's evil. Because that means that God's going to do whatever he wants, watch out. But if God's good, that should produce tremendous trust in us. Because it says the king may will this, and God may say, nope. The king may be an evil man, and God may say, hmm. And that's what happens, what God wills. A bully may mean, I want to hurt you, and God may say, I'm actually going to bless you. It should produce tremendous trust and worship that God controls things thus and so. But be careful that it be a worship of God in His goodness and not of good results because God sometimes wills that the bully not kick the boy and that there be no early trigger. I said, I think that there were 12 people in the country with that disease. 11 of them did not detect it early. That also is under the providence of God. So we must be careful that we not trust in and hope in and worship favorable results according to our definition, but that we trust in and hope in and worship a good God 
and read what he does through that lens. How do I know God is good if he does not surface my child's disease in time? How do I know he's good? You look at the cross. You have to go back to the cross. At the cross, he has given us firm evidence. I am good. I have delivered you. And I mean for you to look at this and to look through it at my character testified to by the cross and to look through that at the circumstances that may well be hard. Don't cop out and say, God couldn't do anything about that. Yes, he could have. He's God. You don't want a God that can't do anything about that. You don't want that God. You want a God who can and says, I won't. I'm good. I mean something better. There's a big pill to swallow here. I realize that. But it's right here. We look at this and we say, oh, this is wonderful. The providence of God saved Paul and carried him off to Rome where the Caesar executed him. Did God slip up? Did his providence fail? Did his goodness evaporate? No. He's still the same God. How do you know? The cross. Through the cross, interpret the circumstances. The providence of God should cause us to marvel at the complexity of it and to worship him and to trust him when things are hard. Saying, this too is under your control You have shown me you are good. I will follow you in this. Even while weeping. Folks who are writing that article about their son, the man, as I said, they don't know how the story is going to end. But one of the conclusions that he drew out of it, not just to thank God for bullies, was he was talking about how that had heightened his spiritual life. How it had drawn him to God in a variety of different ways. providence of God should call us to worship him and trust him. Especially when we think about what the providence of God is particularly focused on. That's the second observation. My second observation has to do with purpose. Everywhere, we, everywhere in life, we live under and should rest in and worship God in his glorious providence. He's accomplishing many different purposes, but there's a single chief and primary purpose the providence of God is bent towards. Second observation. In these last days, God is providentially pursuing one particular purpose, the exaltation of Christ. Here in these last days, there is one single great purpose that God is providentially shaping everything towards. The exaltation, the lifting up of, the exalting of Christ. He lifted him up on the earth, under the cross. He raised him up out of the grave. He has raised him up into heaven where he reigns. And he reigns now. 
acting in this world so as to lift up Christ in every possible circumstance, everywhere in life. Everything is shaped towards that. Notice how this text directs us towards that. There's no explicit statement here about it. I can't, say, I can't point to this verse and say, there's where it is. It's not. The text is very subtle. As I said, it doesn't even mention God. But it does raise a question. It should cause us to think, if God is providentially in control of all things, which he is, why doesn't he break him out of jail? Why not? Every time we turn around, some human authority is saying, Paul, you're innocent. Agrippa's going to say it next week. Festus says it twice this week. Felix said it last week. The Roman tribune said it before that. Half the Sanhedrin said it before that. You've not done anything wrong. Why is he still in jail? You would think that the humans would have released him. Certainly God could have. He broke him out of jail with an earthquake in Philippi. Why not here? Because God's agenda is not the liberty of Paul. Brothers and sisters, we live in, this is a world, we live in a world that is radically God-centered. And right now, specifically, is radically Christ-centered. It is not me-centered or us-centered. Which is not to say there's no blessing for us here. There is much blessing for us. But our blessing is tied to Christ being the center. Christ lifted up is what's good for us. He's radically about lifting up Christ. And that's what he's doing through Paul. He is providing opportunity after opportunity after opportunity for Paul to lift up Christ in very unique situations, before kings and governors and before the Caesar himself. It would be difficult for Paul to have those chances if he was free walking the streets. Maybe he would have been killed, but it's difficult to just walk in and talk to Caesar. But God wants Christ to be lifted up in the eyes of Caesar and he takes Paul there through a rather circuitous, painful route. Was that fun being in jail for all those years? I highly doubt it. That's what God's doing. He's about Christ and in that setting he brings great joy to Paul. You read the New Testament, you realize Paul did not live a glum and sour life. He lived filled with joy even while imprisoned. He knew how to be sorrowful and always rejoicing. There is a single message that God is speaking to the world. You can sum it up in a word, Christ. And he is shaping his people and all of the circumstances in the lives of his people so as to speak that message, both because it is what Christ most deserves and because it is the only hope for any blessing and lasting happiness for humanity. He must speak this message to people, Jesus. And he will do that through the mouths of us, his people. That's his primary concern. I think, I think that seeing that helps me sometimes, I think that seeing that helps me sometimes to weigh the circumstances that are hard and painful. When I remember, I can look at the circumstances in my life that I don't really like, 
And I can say, but God is good and he's doing something with this that is about lifting up Christ and that's good for me too. You keep this in mind. In these last days, he is about speaking the message of Christ. And he will do it through any and every circumstance, shaping them so as to provide a platform for it. I mentioned the last days a couple times because of verse 19. We're told here that, again, one salient point of Paul's defense was his mention of the resurrection. Now, we don't get many details. That's the only detail that we get about the trial, actually. That he mentioned something about, and Festus was enough confused, there's some dead guy named Jesus who is alive. He didn't get it all. But Paul somehow mentioned the resurrection again, just like he has done previously. He's done this repeatedly at different trials. He argued it back in chapter 23 before the Sanhedrin. I'm on trial here because of the hope of the people tied to the resurrection. He mentioned it in chapter 24, twice before Felix. The resurrection, he mentions it again today. Paul is repeatedly on this point of the resurrection, even more so than the cross, which is a little odd for us. We think he should be preaching about the cross. He does preach about the cross, but he's emphasizing the resurrection. Why? Everybody he's talking to knows Jesus was crucified. He doesn't need to tell them that. They know it. They either did it or they celebrated it. But they have an interpretation of the cross. They're looking at it from an angle. The cross means he was a criminal that we condemned. Or the cross means that he was a criminal and a blasphemer that God condemned. Either way, he's a condemned criminal. And Paul brings up the resurrection repeatedly to cast it in a different light. Yes, for sure he was condemned and crucified. But, come on now. Kind of hear him saying that to the the Jews. Come on now, if he was resurrected, what does God think of him? If God raised him, what does God think? Condemned? Absolutely. But approved also. That's the gospel. Those two things together. Condemned upon the cross, approved in the resurrection. Jesus, condemned upon the cross, to pay for sin, judged, the wrath of God poured out on him, raised, approved by God, delighting in him. It's like God's hanging a neon sign around the neck of Jesus. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. In all the past days, I've spoken to your fathers in many and various ways, but in these last days, I have spoken through my Son. This is Him. In Him alone, the hope of the Old Testament comes true, and apart from Him, it never will. These are the last days of hope and the days of Messiah, the days of deliverance. Come to him. That's why Paul preaches the resurrection again and again and again and again. Because it tells us what the cross did. And it also tells us where we are in time. We're in the last days. Some of us as Christians are accustomed to thinking of the last days as something that's happening over there. And we spend a lot of time kind of trying to figure out when they're going to come and how we know and we chart and graph stuff and 
Yes, there is stuff yet to come, but focusing totally on it in that perspective causes you to miss the fact that the last days are here. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, as in right now. This is the end. read a book one time where the author said, from the perspective of Judaism, the whole of Christianity is eschatology. Christianity, the whole thing, is the age of Messiah, the age of the Spirit, the age of deliverance, which is the end. And we live in this odd period of between the two ends. He's come and he's coming. It's kind of like we're in injury time. If you're a soccer fan, you might know what that is. If you're a soccer fan, you know that a professional soccer game is 90 minutes long. And, and they don't stop the clock. So you can at any point look at your watch and do, do the math and figure out, I know exactly when this game is going to be over. Almost. Because when the 90 minute ex- minutes expire, the referee will suddenly announce how much injury time there is. If you ever watch a, a soccer game, you know that while the clock is still running, the soccer players themselves spend an inordinate amount of time rolling around on the ground, seemingly fatally wounded only to pop up again and run around like nothing happened. But the referee's keeping track of all that. And the amount of celebration time and the amount of time that the ball's off in the stands and whatnot. He's keeping track. Nobody else really knows. And at the end of the 90 minutes, the game is over, but there are four more minutes to go. But it's not exactly four more minutes. It might be four minutes and 20 seconds, or four minutes and 30 seconds, or four minutes and 10 seconds. You don't exactly know. But there's a little more time. The end has come, but the end isn't quite here yet. And if the game is close, injury time is frenetic. If it's a one-goal game, the team that's down is going crazy trying to score. You pull the goal, you add another attacker, because time is running out. In the 48th minute, not quite so crazy. Towards the end, when you move into injury time, you must score because the end is imminent. We live in injury time. What matters in injury time? Playing with urgency so as to accomplish the goal. All that God is doing now in this time, is exalting Christ. He's working to lift up Christ. You and I, we live in injury time. We are his means. He has said, you shall be my witnesses, and I will providentially set the table everywhere so that you can be. Brothers and sisters, we have to get that. And we must repent of living otherwise. God is providentially working to bring all the circumstances of life together to set the table that we might be witnesses and exalt Christ. And far too often we say, what's in this for me? Frankly, I don't like soccer. You're in that game. Play. You're required to. And it's your joy. Really? You don't have a choice, but choose it. 
God is at work doing something very, very subtly. It's really easy to step back and and walk through life day after day. Tons of non-Christians do it. Tons of Christians do it. To walk through life day after day after day, never even thinking about God. Rarely does he rise up and step into the picture such that you can't avoid him. Most of life is like chapter 25. God's not even mentioned. But he's there in everything. Setting it up so that this new guy, Festus, who doesn't even know who Jesus is, would hear the gospel twice. And all of the military officers of the city and all of the leading Gentile men in the city come to the trial. They're going to hear it. So is King Agrippa and his sister, Bernice. And so did Felix before. Because God's doing that work to providentially control events that Christ might be exalted. So follow him and trust him. Let me pray. Father, I pray that in these last days you would in some strong and new way call us to the colors. You would call us to enlist Call us to arms. Call us to your side. Lord, you are about something. The lifting up of Christ. And you mean for us to be too. And I pray, Lord, that you would do a work in our hearts. That you would control all the providential events around us. Things like this sermon. Things like our Bible study this week. Things like discussion with friends, be they Christian or non that you would work providentially through all these different events to shape us and incline us towards willingly embracing your mission. God, I pray that you would do that. I don't have any real idea how you will do that. It's more complex than I can understand. But I pray that you would do it and that Christ would be lifted up that the nations would be drawn to Zion, that the instruction would move out from here to there, wherever there is around the globe. Do this to the glory of Christ, I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.